Well, this morning we are, um, we're wrapping up our series as we've been looking at these instincts, this conversation about character, and uh, next week we'll be turning to 2 Kings, so uh, uh, you can mark your place in your Bible and uh, start there. Next week we'll spend a little bit of time catching up. It was a long time ago we ended, uh, I think it was back before uh, COVID even started. We, we were planning on going to 2 Kings, but switched and went to the Psalms, if you remember, right at the beginning of, of COVID. So it's been a while, so I'll catch us back up on where we left off next week in uh, 1 Kings as we go to 2 Kings. But this week, we're going to be wrapping up this conversation about instincts. Uh, If you'll remember back to where we started, uh, it's been eight weeks we've been doing this. And at the very beginning, I mentioned that these were based on uh, the five masculine instincts work that I had been doing. And some of you, my wife included, was saying, are we going to hear eight weeks of sermons about men? Uh, And I told you way back at the very beginning, although I think this is an important conversation for men, my hope was that as we got into these instincts, you would recognize how so many of them are are true in all of us. These instincts have really... uh, Uh, played out across all of our lives. And really the thing we've been trying to do over these weeks is not even just these particular five instincts, but trying to show you how at all times we all, male, female, young, old, we have these instincts or desires or impulses that often drive our behavior. And it becomes easy for us to ignore those things, to assume those things, and that the path forward to growing to become like Christ is always a part of recognizing what it is that's currently motivating us and recognizing how to balance it or check it by what we have in Christ. Really what we've been doing over the last eight weeks is having a conversation about how as believers we grow in character. Uh, I started by using Peter's words from 2 Peter where he encouraged the church there to add to their faith, supplement their faith with virtue and godliness and brotherly love. And so in many ways this conversation has been about how do we continue to make progress as believers? Having believed, having received Christ as our Savior, how do we intentionally grow to be more like Christ? How do we become people of growing Christian character? Uh, One of the passages I want to turn back to and read one more time for you as a way of sort of concluding this conversation is in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read a couple of those verses here in a moment. But if you'll remember the context of 1 Timothy, uh, Paul's letters to Timothy are some of my favorites because they're some of Paul's most personal writing. So elsewhere you get Paul writing letters to the Corinthians, a whole church, probably many small churches. Or places like the book of Romans where Paul's writing to believers, many of which he's never met, but hopes to meet someday. What's unique about Paul's letters to places like Ephesus where Timothy is serving or to Titus is that Paul is writing to a single individual, somebody he knows really, really well and is mentored. So you get when Paul writes to Timothy some of Paul's most personal and specific advice to an individual. And so keep that in mind as you read Paul's words, this sort of summary advice that he gives at the end of chapter 4, because Timothy's in a remarkably hard place. He's trying to lead a church in Ephesus that is awash in false teaching and conflict amongst men and women. And so it's a difficult task for him. You'll remember Timothy is also young, so there's challenges about can he speak to those people given his age. And so Paul says, I should have marked my Bible, let me get to 1 Timothy. I normally do this ahead of time, so you don't have to watch for me flipping through my Bible. Here we go. So Paul gives this advice as a way of summarizing this. I'm going to be reading 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning verse 15 through the end. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15. So Paul is given a long list of specific advice, and then he says to Timothy, So practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that they may see your progress. 
Um, this idea of progress is really important for Timothy. Timothy's a believer, a church leader. But Paul says he should be focused on progressing in that faith in such a way that the people around him can see the way that his Christian character and conduct is progressing. And then Paul summarizes it, verse 16. So keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I think that's a pretty profound piece of advice that Paul gives. If you want to continue making progress, showing the progress you're making as a believer, growing in Christ-likeness and character, and Paul goes so far as to say, if you want to save yourself and the people that are un- you bear responsibility for, the people you are leading, then the way you make progress, you move forward, is by this task of watching your life closely and watching the teaching closely. I want to come back this morning to look at those two tasks and really hopefully set them in front of you as something, if you take anything away from this series, that this is what we've been trying to do through these instincts and what I hope you can pick up on as a way of thinking about progress in your own life, continuing to grow in your own life, watching my life closely, watching the doctrine, the teaching, this gospel message that I've received closely. So the first of those, watching your life. Um, Really, this has been the thing we've been doing is that we've been trying to point out these instincts. We've looked at five of them. Certainly, there are more than five instincts. Maybe after listening to these five, you said, none of those really describe me. None of those fit my life. Maybe you have some really particularly unique instinct that you're living out of. That's totally fine and possible. The goal's not been just that you would recognize one of these five instincts, but rather you would pick up this skill of asking yourself, what is actually motivating me? What are the things in my heart that I'm desiring most? What are the assumptions that I make about how life works and the way that I should live in this world? Really, what we've been trying to do is take a moment to say, are you willing to ask yourself really hard and honest and personal questions about why you do the things that you do or why the particular sins you struggle with or the particular sins you struggle with? John Owen, one of the great Puritan writers, put it this way. He writes, many men live in the dark to themselves all their days. Whatever else they know, they know not themselves. They know their outward estates, how rich they are, the condition of their bodies as to health and sickness they are careful to examine. But as to their inward man and their principles as to God and eternity, they know little or nothing of themselves at all. Indeed, few labor to grow wise in this matter. Few study themselves as they ought are acquainted with the evils of their own hearts as they ought, on which yet the whole course of their obedience and consequently all their eternal condition doth depend. I think John Owen is right. Most of us are well-trained in how to pay attention to our retirement accounts, the stock market, handling our personal budgets. We know well, especially over the last two years, to pay close attention to signs of sickness and health trying to put in place workout plans and lose a few pounds and become a more healthy person. Yet scripture calls us to that same kind of attention. What does it mean to watch your life closely, to be aware of what is going on inside of your heart, your motives, your soul? That's work that no one else can do for you, by the way. Um, Just showing up on Sunday mornings, hearing a sermon, saying, that was interesting, I learned something about scripture, is probably not enough to get that done, to really understand what is going on in your own heart. At some point, that is a task each of us has to decide to do for ourselves, to bear responsibility for ourselves. 
At some point, you have to make a decision to say, I'm going to humble myself enough to allow the Holy Spirit to point to things in my life, to speak to me about things in my life that perhaps would be easier or I would rather to go on ignoring. At times, that requires going to someone you trust and opening your life up for their input, allowing them to speak into what they see. It certainly involves sitting down with Scripture and allowing it to examine your life. Scripture, this sword that is able to penetrate deep beyond our own instincts. At times, it requires you simply going to the Lord in prayer, setting aside for a moment just your requests of him and instead opening your life before him and allowing him to point to things to show you things. That is work you have to take responsibility for, to grow and become more like Christ. And it's central for Paul's advice to Timothy. Pay close attention to yourself, your heart, your life, your behavior. Now, if that was the end of this sermon and series, which certainly it could be, and it would be work worth doing, it would actually be insufficient. And it is by Paul's own advice to Timothy. It might even be, in fact, dangerous to only walk away from this sermon series with the conclusion being, I need to pay attention to myself, I need to watch my own heart so that I can become a person of better character. That is traditionally the way we, culture, and history has talked about character. That it's something you do by self-determination and by habit. You put in place habits, plans, much like you would a fitness plan, I'm going to work on my inner life and become a better person turn over a new leaf, practice some new good habits. It's uh, the point now after New Year's resolutions where they've all failed and fallen apart anyways, but that's the way we normally go about it, right? I'm going to set some personal goals to make myself a better person. But the problem is that's not where Paul ends the advice. Timothy, if you want to grow in character, self-determination, focus on yourself, be serious about it. He also offers him this other task of watching the teaching, the doctrine closely. C.S. Lewis actually writes about this warning of why self-knowledge and self-determination alone can actually be dangerous in the way that we think as Christians about growing in character. C.S. Lewis warned about anyone who would motivate men towards character based on this idea of self-determination, self-will. He writes, these men appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, his self-respect, to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity, that is, by pride. And as Lewis later says, it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. So the danger here is that you walk away saying, I found that motivating. I think I want to be a person of better character or better integrity. And so I'm going to put in place a plan and I'm going to make myself a better person. But Lewis cautions is, if you go about the work of Christ-likeness and character through your your own inner conviction, your own inner strength, it has a tendency to turn toward pride. So let me give it to you in two warnings or two images of how I think this works and why you should be particularly careful when you approach character or Christ likeness by self-determination alone. The first image I want to give you is that image, that myth of Narcissus. Do you remember this one, the one we get our word narcissist from? The story went that Narcissus fell in love with his own reflection in the water, and that as he became, uh, as he became captivated by this image of himself, He slowly wasted his life and grew old, accomplishing nothing as he spent his days staring at his own reflection. 
Uh, you were here this morning, so you made it past the mirror. You didn't get stuck in a similar position, uh, looking at yourself all morning. But there is a kind of temptation that we can get lost in a kind of perpetual self-fixation. It may not be our own beauty or how great we are, but we can get just as fixated on ourself, our own potential, our own inner unique personality traits, our individuality. And I think this is a huge temptation for the advice that our culture is constantly pushing on us. Culture tells you that your true happiness, that your true source of strength is in looking inside yourself and embracing who you are, believing in who you are, discovering your own unique individual expression in life. So we have this advice to look inside yourself, to pursue what makes you happy. Wouldn't God want you to be happy? What are your dreams and your passions, the things that make you feel alive? On and on, you hear this from culture, on and on. That your hope and your significance is inside, and if you look inside, you can embrace it. The problem is, you can waste your entire life constantly just looking inside at what you want, fixated on yourself. And I think the sad reality is, it never fully delivers. There's always some changing desire, some changing insecurity or need, and your life, like Narcissus, ends up slowly being wasted as you obsess yourself more and more on yourself. George MacDonald, one of the writers that influenced C.S. Lewis, writes, There are those who never learn to see anything except in relation to themselves, nor that relation except as fancied by themselves. And this being a withering habit of mind, they keep growing drearier and older and smaller and deader the longer they live, thinking less of other people and more of themselves and their past experiences all the time as they wither. That really is the story of Narcissus, that this potential of myself can somehow cost me myself as I obsess and look constantly to my own needs, my own expectations. One of the risks of hearing me say, you need to grow in your character and you can do it, become a better person, is that you actually become kind of obsessed with your own potential, what you can do and who you could be. But there's another risk. Uh, Like the story of Narcissus, you might be familiar with the story of Sisyphus. Remember, Sisyphus was the one who was fated for all eternity to roll the giant boulder up the mountain. And every time he got it near the top of the mountain, it would roll back down the mountain. And he would go back and begin again constantly, this up and down, lifting this weight. Some of you say that's exactly what life feels like. I'm in this picture. Uh, One of the risks of constantly trying to make yourself better is it can become a kind of endless process of constantly failing to live up to what you imagine you could live up to. You probably know this well. You see something you imagine you might be able to do. You're filled with this kind of energy for the work, what's possible for you. You begin rolling that boulder, and at some point, you lose it, and the boulder rolls back down to the bottom. And you begin that long, slow path back down and start once again this cycle of never quite living up to who you could be. I think a lot of Christians get stuck in this. We take up this task of becoming like Christ. Somebody being kind, but maybe not all that helpful, gives us a plan for doing it, some ways of living, some rules to put in place. And we go about imagining that if we just had enough determination and self-will and discipline, we could do it. We could achieve it. We roll that boulder for a while and then eventually lose it. It slides back down and we go about the work again. 
Narcissus got stuck staring at his reflection, obsessed with his potential, but Sisyphus just got sort of worn out and overcome by the endless task of never quite accomplishing what he set out to do. These are the two traps, I think, of self-knowledge alone. That if you think you could just make something of yourself, become a person of character, these are usually the two experiences, either obsessed or constantly discouraged by your inability. So I think it is wise that Paul recognized it is not self-knowledge alone that leads to progress. It's not just obsessing over ourselves. It's not just constantly tearing ourselves down and recognizing our own insufficiency. Self-knowledge is about coming to the realization that we need something beyond ourselves. That to become better is not something we're capable of doing on our own. We grow in self-knowledge so that we might open our lives and our hearts to something beyond ourselves that can change us. I've quoted it to you before, but one of my favorite of Eugene Peterson's lines was, one way to define the spiritual life is getting so tired and fed up with yourself that you go on to something better, which is following Jesus. I think that's part of what it means to look deep within yourself. It's to come to the realization that yourself is not enough. Um, Shakespeare, who I base these five instincts on, I use them as sort of a framework for describing them. We've done that each week, looked at one of these uh, stages of a man that Shakespeare describes. He opens that famous list of the stages of a man with that quote that all the world's a stage. And each of us, men and women, are mere players on it. We have our entrance and our exits, he writes, and each of us in our time has these parts. He goes on to describe seven of them. This idea of each of us playing a role or having a part, I think, is a helpful way of recognizing the risk and the challenge. When we start to pay close attention to our own lives, we come to realize that we are, in a way, playing a kind of part. We come to understand that we narrate the world. We think that certain things matter. We pick up stories that the world is offering us, and along with it, certain expectations about how we're supposed to live in the midst of the world, the part that we're supposed to play, this instinct that tells us that that's the way we are to be in the world. So part of what we're doing when we come to this self-knowledge that Paul recommends is we're starting to recognize the part that we've been playing. We do that in large part so that we can then set that part down and receive something else, accept something else. I think what Paul is recommending when he says to Timothy, watch your life closely and the teaching closely, is offering him a way of setting down the expectations of this world, its narrative, its storyline about what is happening, and instead pick up a new part, a new storyline, all the world's a stage, a new play, if you will, that has now been framed by what Jesus Christ has accomplished and welcomed us into. So for Timothy, the way forward is to recognize what is going on in himself and then step out of that and step into this new narrative, this new way of living in the world that he has received through the teaching, the doctrine. The way that doctrine gets used in scripture is a kind of shorthand. He isn't just saying, watch the way you teach or watch what you're teaching, watch the doctrine that you're uh, reading or accepting. Doctrine and teaching is a shorthand in the New Testament for what has been taught to you, what you have received, the tradition of the teaching that's been handed down by the apostles. We would often use the word gospel. So the thing that you have received, this story of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done, don't lose that but keep a close watch on that story. 
It is significant in my mind that Paul says this is something you should keep a close watch on. All of us in the room, if I said, I think I know everybody here today well enough to know you're a believer, and if I said to you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? You would certainly say yes. Do you believe that Jesus came, that he died and he rose again? Yes. Do you believe that he's your Lord and Savior by faith? Yes. Timothy certainly believed those things too. He was teaching it. He was a pastor, a leader in the church. Yet still Paul will say to him, Keep a close watch on the gospel in your life. Paul seems to be implying a couple things. Number one, that this is something we also continue to make progress in. That the way that we understand Christ's death and resurrection deepens in our life. We understand more of it and understand more of its implications. But I think he's also pointing something out to Timothy. That even as a leader in the church in Ephesus, that even as somebody who's dedicated his life to teaching scripture... It is possible for the story, the truth of the gospel, to slip from your life. That you could believe it, you could raise your hand and testify under oath, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ. But somehow the narrative, the part that you play, the way that you understand what's happening around you, slips back into the ways of the world, the parts and narratives of the world, as you lose that narrative of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Paul felt strongly enough about this that he would warn Timothy to watch his life and watch the gospel because if he does not watch it closely, it will slip from his life. I think you should hear that as a warning for you too. It is possible for you to believe passionately in Jesus Christ, to worship him on Sunday mornings, and then leave here and step into a role and a narrative, a play that's happening around you, and to play a part that's expected of you from culture, and so by doing, lose grasp of what you have in Jesus. There's a really good picture of it that comes from the New Testament. It's Paul narrating this event in the book of Galatians, but Paul writes about one of the times that he had to confront the apostle Peter. Peter and Paul had both been at Antioch at the time, Paul had been, of course, an outspoken proponent of incorporating Gentiles into the Christian church and had been in Antioch, Antioch, worshiping with Gentiles, eating with Gentiles. Peter had come from Jerusalem and seeing what God was doing, the words God had spoken to him, agreed and so found himself also going into Gentile homes and sitting down to meals with Gentiles. But Paul said there were prominent men from Jerusalem that came to Antioch, and when they did, Peter began to withdraw himself from those Gentile relationships. He started living out the expectations of those prominent men from Jerusalem, and so by doing, began to pull himself away from the Gentile believers he had been worshiping with. Now, there's lots of ways for Paul to have pushed back on Peter. Peter, certainly this is hypocrisy. You said you believed it, but now you're acting in a different way. You could call it a kind of racism. At one point, you were open to the Gentile people, and now you find yourself shunning them for political, internal reasons. It's interesting, though, the way that Paul describes what Peter was doing. He writes in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter, he opposed Peter to his face, for Peter was not in step with the truth of the gospel. It's always struck me that that's the way that Paul framed the challenge. What had Peter done? Had he sinned? Had he shown himself a hypocrite? Had he gone back on his word? Paul says the best way to describe it is that he was out of step with the gospel. That the gospel had laid out a kind of path, its implications before him. And that as Peter now shifted his attention from the gospel to the prominent men that arrived from Jerusalem, 
he stepped off the path of the gospel and began to live out a different trajectory. If you use Shakespeare's idea of a play and all of us participants in it, all of a sudden Peter had stepped out of the narrative of the gospel, the production of the gospel, and had taken up another part, another storyline, another play, motivated by the expectations of these men from Jerusalem. That should be a little bit of a warning to you. If someone like Timothy is at risk of doing this, if someone like Peter, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, could do this, how easy is it for you to come here on Sunday mornings, hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and then, filled with the expectations of the world around you, to step out of line from that gospel and take on some expectation or part in the world? And so by doing, find yourself not in step with the truth of the gospel. Most of us have been watching the news this week. We understand that when a news headline comes, it changes things. The whole world can shift in a single breaking news headline, that everything that was yesterday can suddenly be reoriented and changed by a new piece of information. The news we've been watching is changing not just Ukraine and Russia, it's changing the reality of the world, people all over the world. It makes us reconsider things, reevaluate things. It forces us to ask hard questions about how we live and what we're willing to do. Many of us remember those breaking news headlines of September 11th. And even today, some 20 years later, we still hear those messages we will never forget. A part of what we try to do is hold on to the reality. When a news headline comes in a moment, we recognize how everything has been impacted by it. But gradually, as days pass and weeks accumulate and years come, those things that were once so obviously changing and pivotal suddenly slip back into history and we find ourselves forgetting, no longer feeling the same way, no longer motivated the same way. That risk is always before us as Christians who live our lives in the news, the good news of the gospel. That in one moment, it can so overwhelm us with its reality and power as to change and reorient our entire lives. And then, likewise, as days and weeks and years pass, slowly we find ourselves forgetting some of its power, picking up some of the narratives of the culture around us, slowly stepping off the line of the gospel and finding ourselves more in step with the world around us. This is how Christians are supposed to think differently about what it means to develop character and to make progress in this world. We don't say to one another simply, try harder. I saw those mistakes you're making. I I saw how your life is starting to fall apart. Let's get some new habits in place. Let's get your life back on track, some new resolutions. Christians say to one another, don't forget what you are a part of. Don't forget the gospel that you are actually living in, the news that you have. We don't spur one another on simply by self-effort and self-will. We spur one another on by saying, remember what you have in Christ. Remember what Christ has given you. Remember that his kingdom is here now. That new story comes with a way of acting and living And the more we receive it, the more we align our lives with the reality of this news we've received, the more our way of being and acting and living in this world is changed by it. The task before us as Christians is not just to make ourselves better. 
It's to integrate our lives more deeply with the reality of what Christ has done and is doing. To find ourselves following him more closely, on the path of the gospel more closely. There's a story from the Middle Ages about Mary, which is a strange place for me to end a sermon series about masculinity, but uh, it's proof that this has been for women too. Mary is often considered, particularly in the medieval times, as a kind of uh, example of perfect Christian virtue or character. She was pointed to as somebody who had a kind of ideal obedience. So one of the middle uh, writers from the Middle Ages wrote, The greatness and nobility of Mary's contemplation. He imagines Mary in a moment of prayer before God. The greatness and nobility of this contemplation of God filled her full of reverent awe. And with this, she saw herself so small and so humble, so simple and so poor in comparison with her Lord God. I like that image, self-knowledge, understanding myself in relationship to God. But they went on to write that this reverent awe filled her with humility. And so, founded on this, she was filled with grace and with every other kind of virtue. I want to set that before you and not say necessarily that Mary is just your example of character and virtue, but to say that idea of when I humble myself, when I orient myself into God, when I receive from God this proper understanding of who I am and who he is, it has a way of infusing character and virtue into my life. You start acting and living differently because you suddenly have a real grasp of who God is and who you are by comparison, of realizing what you have in Christ by his grace and his mercy. And as those realizations become true, your character changes, not by self-will or determination, but it's infused in you by this breaking news, this realization of what you have in Christ, this new narrative, this new part you pick up. One of the ways that it's often put in scripture is that on our own, we have hearts of stone, hearts that are incapable of being moved or changed. But through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ, God has taken these hearts of stone and turned them into hearts of flesh that he puts in us a heart. The power for change is not in you, but in Christ, in his gospel. And so the work before us has always been that path, self-knowledge, who I am before God, what is motivating me that I might have perspective of it, and then opening my life to receive something better in him, to let his gospel and the news of it infuse in me a new way of living and being in this world. I've given it to you before, but one of my favorite parables of Jesus' teaching is the parable of the barren fig tree. Uh, I'll keep it short, but it is short in Jesus' parable as well, too. But a uh, landowner went out to look at his orchard and found that there was a fig tree that was still not producing figs. The man said he had given it three years, and still there were not figs. Many fig trees can take three to four years to even begin, so it's possible that he had waited those years plus an additional three, and it still wasn't. So six, maybe seven years, he's been caring for this tree and waiting, and still no figs on it. And so the landowner instructed the servant, cut it down. Why should it take up more room, waste space in the garden? We'll plant something else. But the steward said to him, sir, leave it alone one more year. Let me spread some manure around its trunk and let's see. That was the end of Jesus' parable. 
There's no conclusion, no moral of the story. We don't know if it works, if the next year there were figs or not. I've always found that to be one of Jesus's most helpful parables because it is the reality of what life so often feels like. It is so easy when we are honest about ourselves to look and think, where is the progress? Why these same sins? Why do I still struggle? These same temptations? Why can't I make the progress that I want to make? And it is easy to get stuck, to give up, to no longer believe, to think that progress itself is perhaps not possible. But I want to suggest to you the work is not just in trying to produce figs, hoping that they will be there. The work is in spreading the manure around the trunk, taking and giving it a little more time. I think what we're called to do as Christians is that work, to recognize our own life and its needs, to take the gospel and spread the gospel around the trunk, give it time, pile on a little more gospel, bring ourselves back to Christ, work it deeper into the soil of our lives, and wait and trust that as we spread the gospel more and more into our lives, fruit will be there. It's always struck me as interesting that fruit is the image that Scripture turns to, that our lives, by the Spirit's power, bear fruit. Any of you who have grown fruit trees know that you can't produce the fruit. You can't go out there and ask the tree to give you an apple. It takes time, and your attention should be on the soil, the water, chasing off pests, And given enough time, the fruit shows up. It appears. So it is with our own lives. We don't aim at making ourselves a better person. We don't spend all of our time and our will saying, how can I have better character? How can I be more like Christ? We spend our energy and our time asking what Christ has done, seeing and experiencing the grace that he's offered, incorporating his teaching into our lives, what we've received by grace, And we find that by the work of the Holy Spirit, our hearts of stone are turned into hearts of flesh. And so by it, fruit begins to appear. It would be nice if we could somehow, by our own effort, make ourselves perfect. If we could accomplish it. If we could put enough self-determination and will into it to become the person we would like to be. But that's not the way it works now. It is the promise that it is coming. That a day is coming when all will be set right, including our motives and our instincts and our hearts. This promise that eternity in heaven will be a place without sin has always been an interesting one. What is it that changes in us that as we step into eternity, suddenly we find ourselves no longer shackled to this brokenness of sin and temptation? I think certainly a part of it is that we come to realize by eternity the full reality of who Christ is and what we have in him. That every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess, that there will be no denying the truth and the reality of the gospel. And that so by it, our lives will be so transformed by the truth of it that we will no longer find ourselves tempted or enticed to live by the ways of this world or ourselves. Our lives become changed and transformed by the reality of who he is and the truth of it. Some, by faith, enter and receive. Others find their hearts hardened to rebel against it. But no one can dispute that this is the truth, that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And for those who receive it, that news is so true, so real, so clear, 
that our hearts are forever transformed and fixed into the reality of it. Temptation is something we no longer experience because truth is something we have in all of its lived reality before us. For now, we look through that mirror, that glass dim, straining to see the things to come, but by the Spirit made possible to believe, to trust, to give our lives over to it. But a day is coming where this work will be complete, where the struggle of that work will be complete, where Christ will be fully known and our hearts transfigured forever with it. For now, we humbly pick up the task, paying close attention to our own hearts, our own lives, understanding the way in which this world tempts us, understanding the way in which our instincts distort us, not trusting them, but checking them, gaining clarity on them, And we do it so that we might also pay close attention to what we have in Christ, this teaching that we have received, this message of the gospel, taking up that story, that part, aligning our steps and our lives with the reality of the gospel's truth, and so by it, the joy of realizing fruit, things appearing in our life by the Spirit's work that on our own we never could have produced and anticipating that a day is coming where none of those fig trees will go barren, but that fruit will be eternal, that we will experience this life changed in all of the ways we long for for all eternity. And in that day, our final statement won't be, I did it. (laughs) I fixed myself. I made it. I turned myself into what I always wanted to be. In that day, we will say, God is faithful. God is good. God is gracious. Jesus is the perfecter of my faith. He walked with me and saw me through to the other side. And for all eternity, we will worship, not for what we've achieved, the character we've built, but the goodness and the faithfulness of God. So we do it now, too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are faithful. We are here today because of your goodness, because of your faithfulness. So we pray as we wrap up this series, God, not that we would leave here with some vision of who we could be, not that we would be motivated by pride to make ourselves something, but that, God, we would leave here humbled, that we would leave here recognizing that you have given us an opportunity that on our own would never be possible, that you have given us a way to make progress, fruit, joy, and goodness, and character, and virtue, made possible because by your grace you change our hearts. You make us who we couldn't be on our own. So this morning we undertake this task to watch our lives closely. God, help us not to get caught up in some expectation of the world around us, not to just pick up the world's advice, but but to transform our minds, to make our lives a living sacrifice laying down our own desires, dying to ourselves. And so by it that, God, we might be able to see your gospel more clearly, to watch this teaching we've received more closely, not losing it, not drifting from it, not finding ourselves out of step with it, but centering our lives on it. Your mercies new every morning to us, your gospel alive every day, and our lives more and more working out the implications of it, living out this gospel that we've received. 
And God, we pray that you would do as you promised, that your spirit would work fruit in our lives, that we would find our hearts moved and changed, that you would deliver us from temptation and evil, that you would put us on a path of righteousness, and that, God, our hearts in the end would do now as they will for all eternity, worship you, declare your goodness, your faithfulness, your grace. So we do it this morning as a way of closing this service and this series. You are faithful. You are good. You are always leading us, always guiding us, always disciplining us and keeping us and perfecting us, testing us when we need it, forcing us to take rest and Sabbath when it's needed, coming down and giving us lessons, teaching us, teaching us to deepen our commitments, and that by all of it, God, we might receive and enjoy more of you. So we worship you again this morning. It's in your name we pray.